finally showed my face at Fenway Park last week. I was sequestered all by myself in my owner's box, visible to everyone, but talking to no one. Are you happy now? You should be. Do you think I'm afraid of you, Boston? Angry Red Sox fans? I'm not afraid of anything. Compared to the Liverpool fans, you're all a bunch of little pussycats. They really hate me over there. Right now, Liverpool is in eighth place. In baseball terms, that'd be like the Red Sox being sandwiched between the Las Vegas A's and the Detroit Tigers. We might not even make the European playoffs next year. So, I'm gonna hide out in Boston while we tell our fans in England that we're already cheaping out on our number one target for the offseason. Let's go Red Sox. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 18 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. This week's beverage of the week is water. Uh, I've been good all week. I've really been kind of ratcheting back uh, the booze consumption this month because I know I'm going to spend the first week of May in Nashville and I will be polluting my body probably more than a medical professional would advise. Uh, but I will be going to um, a beer festival tomorrow, on uh, so recording on the night of April 20th. Uh, so the 21st, will be going to uh, the Nerax Beer Festival, N-E-R-A-X. That's at uh, the Lithuanian Club in South Boston. Uh, the festival actually started Wednesday, goes from Wednesday to Saturday. Uh, I'll be at the industry session that's closed to the public Friday afternoon, but there's a session Friday night and two sessions Saturday. I'll link to the show, um, the festival, I guess you call it a show, but I didn't want to say show in the show notes. The festival in the show notes, definitely check that out. It's all cask beer, so half of these are imported from England, half are from local New England craft brewers. There's going to be stuff at this festival that you're not going to find anywhere else. So I highly recommend it if you are a craft beer first person. It is my favorite craft beer festival by far. It's not even close. So we have some things to be positive about. Not toxically positive. You know, we're not going to go overboard, but it's been a good week. So we have to acknowledge the good. You know, the Red Sox have had some luck, but, you know, they... They took advantage of their luck in, in some of these games that have happened. So uh, we're not coming in hot like we did last week. That was some of the feedback I got from last week's show. Uh, some people like the anger. Um, we'll have a little bit of that this week. I'm sure I'll find some things to get pissed off about. But overall, better week for the team. Uh, we're, we might might still have some semblance of a season. I still don't think this is a very good team. This might be a watchably mediocre team. We'll see. It is still early. Um, the big things are the big thing this week that's been different from the first few because I've been railing about the starting pitching on this team about how no Red Sox pitcher had even seen the sixth inning. We finally popped that cherry. Not only that, did it three times. We had three quality starts. Now, for those of you who don't know or have forgotten, because the Red Sox don't really you do the do it that often, a quality start is the high bar of a starting pitcher completing six innings and allowing three earned runs or less. That's what is called a quality start. Now, 
That's a four and a half ERA. That's not even a particularly high bar. You don't have to be, you know, 99 paid order and a quality start, but the Red Sox got their first three of the year over the past week. So uh, against the Angels over last weekend, they took three out of four. Tanner Houck started last Friday on the 14th. Uh, got into a little bit of two-out trouble in the first. Walked Otani, gave up a single to Anthony Rendon, and then Hunter Renfro had an RBI double. Uh, but other than that, the stuff looked good. The control was not great. And we'll talk about uh, Hauk's start today on the 20th, his next start uh, a week later. But you saw uh, a little bit of the kind of the two sides of the coin with, with Hauk. The stuff has never been in question. The control always is. He, the, he got in a little trouble with walks against the Angels. The pitch count got a little high. Um, the Red Sox were lucky that Pop, uh, Patrick Sandoval, almost said Pablo Sandoval, Patrick Sandoval of the Angels, who's you know realistically their best starting pitcher, um, had a great uh, World Baseball Classic for Team Mexico. His control was not much better. He he couldn't get out of the big inning. Um, and really, that game Friday night, if you recall, was a gift from the Angels because Anthony Rendon had two uh, throwing errors that led to Red Sox runs. They won that game on Friday night. And then the Angels gave the Red Sox another gift on Saturday. Um, Pavetta started that game, lost the plate in the first, gave up that grand slam. Um, well, yeah, he walked two guys with two outs. That's never good. I mean, walks are bad enough. Two out walks just, you know, you just can't have it. So he, he you know, stopped the bleeding after giving up that grand slam. The Red Sox, you know, kind of crawled their way back. Uh, you know, Yu Chang had his first hit of the season actually, and hit a home run in that game. So, Happy for you, Chang. You know, there was the quote that he had coming out of the World Baseball Class where he talked about how much better he felt playing um, in Asia or playing in uh, Taiwan than he did playing in the U.S. And he's been getting a lot of playing time due to injury and the fact the Red Sox don't have real shortstop. The defense has been fine, but, the, the, he, he, you know, he's been a, a basically a zero at the play other than that game and other than the game today on the 20th. Um, so... That's one to keep an eye on is how much longer can they keep sending Yu Chang up there if he doesn't give him something, if he can't at least hit 200. So, but on Saturday, he had a moment, he had a couple hits, he had that big home run. So happy for him because I'm rooting for Yu Chang, the person. I'm still skeptical if he's a major league player, but I'm rooting for him. So, you know, he had that good day on Saturday. Um, one of my other notes from this game was uh, Casas. So Tristan Casas, he's still struggling. He's hitting in the 130s. Um, you know, Tony Maz on the baseball hour today asked, uh, Chris Cotillo for mass live. Does he walk too much? I don't think he walks too much. The pitches he's getting striking out on are breaking pitches. They're virtually off speed pitches. I should say, um, you know, righties are just, you know, change ups away. He's chasing them. And then also that back foot slider, you know, just breaking stuff in. He's not laying off it. Um, you know, it seems like the fastball, he recognizes those, he can get the bat to those, but. He's having trouble with big league breaking stuff. Um, so that is something to keep an eye on. You know, at this point, you know, your alternative is Bobby Dahlbeck, who you already sent down. And, you know, we, we've had enough of the Bobby Dahlbeck experience. Uh, you know, theory, you could put uh, Justin Turner there, but then you really don't have a DH. So at this point, you have to keep Casas up, I think. Unless you, unless the, the Cora and the staff believes his confidence is being shaken, you know you don't want him to kind of go through what Jaron Duran did last year. Even Bobby Dahlbeck has at times where just you know 
kind of that just having that failure eat at the eat at him. And I think and I think Casas has a different makeup than those guys, certainly. But unless it gets to that, or unless like we're in June and he's still hitting like 130 and looks absolutely horrible, you, you just got to kind of, you know, let him fight through it. Him being Tristan Casas, uh, they really don't have a lot of other options anyway. Um, and this happens with young players. Look at Jared Kelenic. He was a much more highly regarded process um, prospect than Tristan Casas was. And he was pretty terrible for you know two full seasons in the majors. It wasn't until he made some swing changes. And then now early this season, maybe just maybe Jared Kelenic is starting to tap into his, you know, potential, his prospect pedigree. Um, but with Casas struggling, and it just goes to show two things. Number one, this is this is why you can't count on rookies because they're going to have these issues. They're going to struggle. Or even if they start hot, the league will adjust, and then these guys tend to struggle. Unless you're, you know, Albert Pujols, and, you know, you just come to the big leagues at 21, a fully formed Hall of Famer out of the gate. Even Mike Trout, when he was first called up, struggled. It wasn't until, you know, I guess technically he was a rookie in 2011, but he got his feet wet in 2010 and it wasn't ugly. He started the year in the minors until the angels brought him up and he basically was an MVP. So it's, this is common, but from the Red Sox point of view, you know, if you were counting on Tristan Casas to be a middle of the order bat, because other than Raphael Devers, this team really has no middle of the order bats. We have Justin Turner and Masa Yoshida trying to be middle of the order bats when they're really not. Um, or, or I remember even in spring training, people saying, well, Casas walks a lot. Let's have him bat leadoff. Imagine if he was hitting leadoff like this. I, I get the on-base percentage right now is still decent, but having a guy struggling like he is batting leadoff, you need to give these young players kind of a soft landing, ease them into playing in the big leagues, you know, unless it's, you know, a Ken Griffey Jr. type, which, you know, 99% of players aren't, and Tristan Casas certainly is not. So he's going to have to fight through it. I think he will. I'm not giving up on Casas yet. Uh, but for, you know, some of the Ibluminati who talked him up like he was the next Lou Gehrig, he's not. Uh, he's not a guy you can just put in the middle of the lineup as a rookie. You can't just make it the leadoff hitter as a rookie and expect success. So he's having some growing pains. I'm cautiously optimistic. No, I'm, cautiously, I'm optimistic. He'll fight through it eventually. It's just going to be a matter of time and making some adjustments. Uh, the Sunday uh, game, you had the 2013 reunion. So one of the talking points on um, the name redacted pod is, uh, you know, Jared and um, you know, the other co-hosts like to make fun of Tyler because, you know, the 07 World Series was one of his favorites and they they ranked the World Series teams. And so 2013 was the only one of the four actually went to the parade and kind of going over the teams. You know, at the time I was, you know, I I still love that team. I love all four of the World Series teams. Do, you know, I don't want to get that twisted. Uh, but at the time, I got wrapped up in the emotion, you know, everything around the marathon and all that stuff. You know, that was, you know, all the beards, you know, uh, a bunch of, you know, retreads brought in to supplement a core. People are trying to draw the, you know, comparison from that year to this year. That team, you know, you were supplementing a core of, you know, David Ortiz, Justin Pedroia, Jacoby Ellsbury, John Lester, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're supplementing a core of one guy, Raphael Devers. So that's where that uh, comparison breaks down. But I got wrapped up in it in the time. And just for me, looking back on it, I, I think people overrate that team a little bit. You know, 
And I think part of it might be too is, you know, part of the emotion for me in 2013 was 2012 was so jarring seeing the team finish in last. You know, they hadn't finished in last in 20 years. And like literally, the Red Sox finished in last in 32, which was the first year or the year uh, Tom Yaki bought the team. They didn't finish last again for another 60 years, 1992. The last year, the year, you know, Gene Yaki, Tom Yaki's wife, died. And then it was another 20 years. So literally two last place finishes or three last place finishes in 80 years. And so they finished last in 12. They win it in 13. It felt okay. Order is restored. Normal service is restored. 2012, that was a horrible aberration. And now we're back to being the Red Sox again. And then in 2014, they brought back mostly the same team. They kind of cheaped out and let, you know, Jared Saltalamakia go. And, you know, they let Ellsbury go and try to replace him with Grady Size more. Uh, but it was like 85% of the same team and they fell flat on their face. And then 2015, they fell flat on their face. 2020, they fell flat on their face. So part of the joy for me of 2013 was kind of getting the Red Sox back on track. But then the next year, they went immediately off the rails. So that kind of, in hindsight, you know, sours or diminishes the 2013 championship for me a little bit. Um, but it's still, it's still great seeing those guys. Lots of great personalities, and they certainly kind of captured the town in a way that I don't think any Red Sox team certainly has since. I mean, that 2018 team was demonstrably better. And now that all those guys other than Devers are gone, you know, people, you know, love Xander, love Mookie, love those guys. But at the time, I don't think that team captured the city like the 13 team quite did. Um, but another win on Sunday. Uh, Garrett Whitlock popped the cherry, the first quality start of the season, the first Red Sox starting pitcher to actually see the sixth inning all season. Not only did he complete six innings, he actually completed seven innings, did one better. The first quality start of the year, he looked awesome. Uh, the big takeaway from Whitlock was the slider, getting swings and misses off that. Um, out of the bullpen, he'd been kind of a two-pitch guy, the sinker and the changeup, but that slider not only locating it, but you having that slider be an out pitch, that's going to hold him in good stead as a starter. And I think that kind of opened the eyes to a lot of uh, the bull, uh, Whitlock to the bullpen people, the people that just drone out of butter incessantly. Oh, he, he's so good in the bullpen. He's a weapon in the bullpen. Send him to the bullpen enough to make me blow my head off. So we saw the potential. We know that's in there. That's why Garrett Whitlock needs to stay in the rotation, especially given the dearth of starting pitching in the Red Sox system. So, and the other thing uh, that you can take away from that game is Justin Turner starting to wake up. So with Duvall gone, this team basically has no right-handed hitting. They needed Justin Turner to start hitting, and he's starting to do that. Um, and Alex Verdugo also, his fast start is continuing. Um, that's another guy to kind of keep an eye on is Verdugo. Can he keep this up? How if he or how close can he come to keeping this up? Can he be uh, if he's not a 330 hitter, can he be a 290 hitter? Can he keep playing good defense in right field? So, you know, the first two wins were fluky. You know, you had the two errors on the Friday game and then the Saturday game, which I neglected to mention. You had the two catchers interference calls that set up Yu Chang's uh, game winning single on Saturday. So you got some luck Friday. You got some luck. Saturday. Sunday got a little bit of luck because um, the Red Sox were up 2-1. to one. You had the tying run get picked off in the 8th inning. But 
the Sunday win was felt like a legit win where the other two was kind of the Angels giving you the game. And to be fair, the Angels were playing reasonably well heading into the series. And then the Patriots Day game was a complete fucking disaster. Um, oddly enough, I've never a, been to a Patriots Day game. I've been to opening day a few times. Been I've never been to a playoff game, but I've never done a Patriots Day. I've never done the marathon. So I feel like as a New Englander, I got to do that at some point. Um, but, you know, that game just a complete debacle. Um, and it was, you know, Brian Bayo's first start of the year. You know, it was rain delayed for an hour. It was wet. Um, you know, there was another rain delay after a couple innings. So the Angels, you know, only got two innings out of Shohei Otani who was starting on the mound. And then after the long delay, they had to go. The Angels had to go to their bullpen. Uh, Bayo's just control was off. Um, he was falling behind guys, hitting guys. Um, again, I'm going to give him pass first game of this year in the big leagues, the rain delay, the wet conditions, the odd start time to begin with not worried about it, but you know, it is what it is. The angels were probably going to get one of these games anyway. They probably should have gotten more. So yeah, a little disappointing, you know, a little disappointing for the people who were there, especially, um, but kind of the takeaway from that game was uh, the emergence of Jaron Duran. He had a double, a walk, and a steal. And in the outfield, he actually looked like a major league outfielder. Um, you know, obviously last year there was, you know, the balls he lost in the sun, the inside the park grand slam where he didn't run after the ball that ironically Ryan Maltapia hit. So he was called up at, um for the Angels series after the Red Sox faced a run of a million lefty starters in a row. Um, you know, he's hitting, he's using the opposite field, he being Duran. Um, and the, the defense, as far as I can tell, it's been good. Because even last year, other than, you know, those kind of uh, you know, noticeable, you know, episodes that he had, you know, lo- you know, losing balls in the light or whatever, there were like routine plays that he made look difficult just because his jumps were bad. Um, you know, it looked like he just had no instincts, like to, to play baseball, either at the plate or in the field. And I mean, I can't say that his defense has been great, but I haven't noticed it as being bad. And, you know, him being adequate out there is a massive improvement for where he was last year. So, you know, kind of similar to you, Chang, where um, there was a story, um, that uh, Duran did with, um, Katio on uh, mass live talking about, you know, kind of his mental struggles, adjusting to the big leagues and, you, you read that, you felt for the kid, and I hope he's figured some things out. You know, the swing is shorter. It's direct to the ball. They're having him hit line drives because with his speed, like if he gets like anything into the gap at all, even if the outfielders cut off a gapper, he's a threat to make it a double. If it gets by the outfielders into the gap and gets to the wall, it's a triple. Or if they misplay a ball, I mean, the inside of the park home run is in play with that kind of speed that he has. So, Especially with, you know, Adam Duvall being injured, um, you know, they need somebody up the middle. Um, Christian Arroyo has been battling a hamstring, so Kike has been playing some second base. So if he can play a representative major league center field and then contribute at the bat, there very well could be a role for Jaron Duran on this team. But it is still early. I'm going to try not to take the cheese. Um, But, you know what, we can be encouraged. By what we've seen so far out of Duran, 
while acknowledging there's still time. Because there was a point last year where I was thinking, hey, maybe Franchi Cordero figured things out. And he had, you know, a good week. And then a week later, he's back to swinging at sliders in the dirt and, you know, playing a horrible first base, which he never should have been playing it to begin with. So keep an eye on it. Be optimistic. But I need to see more before I 110% buy in on Jaron Duran. And the other uh, takeaway from the, the Patriots game was uh, Cutter Crawford coming in out of the bullpen after the rain delay, basically saving the entire bullpen, throwing six and a third innings of like two hit ball. He's looked really, really good. Um, the Red Sox currently right now are using a six man rotation for at least one term. And given all the injury questions that this pitching staff has and how little these pitchers have thrown over the last handful of years. In this case, I don't mind the idea of a six man staff at all. I think it makes sense. You know, guys like sale and, and, and Kluber, who's a hundred could use the extra rest. You have young guys like Whitlock and Bayo who have had injuries. Even Hauk had had a back injury if you're keeping him in the rotation. So give those guys extra rest. It's, you know, the six man is a good way to kind of keep the innings down. Like if you want to kind of swing Hauk or swing somebody back and forth, like if you have an off day or something on a six man, you could even do like a five and a half man where if you have an off day, the sixth guy goes to the pen. But if you have no off day and it's six days in a row, that guy goes back into the rotation. So I think you could be creative with it. And I think it's a good way to manage innings on the staff. I mean, the downside is you're down, it's one less arm in the bullpen, which makes these guys going deeper into games, the starting pitchers, that much more important. And I think Cora is starting to realize it and let these guys go a little deeper. So good series over the Angels. Um, some good things to kind of take away. And uh, we'll take a quick break, and then we will talk about this past series with the Minnesota Twins. Is Chris Sale back? Eh, maybe. Maybe. So, on uh, Tuesday against the Twins, Sale gave you six innings, mid-90s heat, dotting the slider, punched out 11 guys. So, that's the closest I've seen to the real clerk Chris Sale since 2019. And he didn't even get it consistently in 2019, but at least in 2019, he had his moment. So as far as Sale goes, I'm not going to pronounce Sale back until we have three good appearances for every two not-so-good appearances. So his first three starts, the first one was horrible. The second one against the Tigers, he managed to get a win. I still don't think he was very good in that game. So I don't call it Balks, call it not so good. And then the third start was horrible. So he was 0-3. This was his first solid uh, performance where it's an unequivocal thumbs up. So for my little make-believe standings, he's 1-3. So I need a 3-2 to two ratio. So I need like four or five more performances approaching what we got on Tuesday before I'll pronounce sale 100% back. But to take nothing away, you know, he had that look again, the eye of the tiger, the asshole look, the psycho look, because most aces, most like real legit aces, they got a screw loose. They got that intimidation factor. The mound presence is the scouts call it. 
So that was back for sale on Tuesday. So that was fun to see. Um, you know, the, the stuff, you know, you've seen the stuff at times. There was that that third start where he was, you know, 91 and throwing sinkers. This this is this is what we need to see if we're going to get the real Chris sale. And obviously he needs to stay healthy. Um, there was a play in the first inning where the bases were loaded and uh, I think it was second and third. And uh, Devers was on third, and Masa Yoshida hit a little chopper to second, and Devers didn't score. That could have been a huge play in the game. The Red Sox stranded seven runners in the first four innings, and it just felt like one of those games where too many squandered chances. You know, when I, whenever a team squanders that many chances early in the game, they, it feels like you, you almost always lose. Uh, you know, Yoshida, he's really started to struggle. It's just. They keep pumping him with high fastballs. He keeps hitting on top of them and hitting weak grounders or soft pop-ups in the infield. Um, you know, Casas was 0 for 4 with 4Ks in this game before work. He uh, eventually working a walk in extra innings. Uh, but again, just this, my notes. This is why you can't depend on rookies. Let them grow at their own pace. So, good thing for the Red Sox is that you know Verdugo has stepped in to be that leadoff guy. They didn't you know try to plug. Um, Casas in there and you know they've been able to keep him relatively down in the lineup so he hasn't absolutely killed them with his uh, his slow start um you know they took advantage of another catcher's interference call this was uh Javier uh, sorry Christian Vasquez not uh, the former Expo Yankee and Brave pitcher Javier Vasquez uh Christian Vasquez had a catcher's interference in the eighth also dropped a uh, third strike in the tenth that started the, the game winning rally um that closer for the Twins, Johan Duran, was throwing 102 mile per hour fastballs, like 98 mile an hour splits. That's it's unbelievable. Like when I was a kid, like Roger Clemens' split was like 88. That was considered a hard split that guys just couldn't pick up. And then in here you go, you know, 30 years later, a guy throwing 98 mile an hour splits. Just the stuff that modern pitchers have compared to even 10 or 15 years ago, just how nasty it is it's just it's unfathomable it really really is um like just in terms of like pure stuff like i don't know if there's a single guy in the 04 team who'd even have average stuff by major league standards i mean maybe i'm overstating it a little bit i mean at that time you know shilling through what like 95 straight the split was still a plus pitch you know pedro was throwing in the low 90s you know at that point of his career, the shoulder was already compromised. You know, occasionally he'd reach back for 94. You know, obviously he's breaking and his changeup was still elite. But, you know, just the, the caliber of stuff you have from both the elite starters and the bullpen guys compared to, again, even the early 2010s. It's it, it's just amazing how far the game has come and how hard it is to hit. Uh so that, that catcher's interference in the eighth uh, allowed the Red Sox to tie go to extra innings. And then uh, John Schreiber went out for the 10th with the, the stupid runner, the zombie runner, the Manfred man uh, for what I call the singles derby because I call extra innings with the stupid runner a singles derby because so many of these games are decided by which team is lucky enough to hit a ground ball through the infield. You just need one little lucky hit to, to win the game a lot of these times. And I think it's fucking stupid. That's why I hate the rule. Just play regular baseball. This is the major league. So, but Schreiber had nothing. He had no control, no clue. Um, but the Red Sox, you know, they got some favors, um, you know, from Vasquez to start the inning. Acasas worked a walk. 
Um, Reese McGuire hit that little dying quail to left field to tie the game, and and then the Red Sox won it. So a little bit of a gift in the eighth, um, and then the tenth, you know, Christian Vasquez, and there was also um, I think a steal in there too. So I, I won't call it as much of a gift as uh, the first two Angels games, but the Red Sox, you know, did ride their luck a little bit. The game on uh, Tuesday night, I was all excited to watch. Um, Yu Chang was put on the paternity list. Uh, Emmanuel Valdez made his major league debut. He's one of the two, you know, so-called prospects the Red Sox got back in the Christian Vasquez trade last year. Uh, I think Sox prospect has uh, Valdez as their 14th or 15th prospect. And once you get that low on a team list, you're pretty marginal. Keith Law didn't even have uh, Valdez in his top 20. Valdez can hit a little bit. The problem is he he doesn't have a position. He doesn't have enough range to play the middle infield. Um, doesn't have the arm to play third base or really the, the outfield. So he's kind of a man without a position. But he was only up for one game. I was excited to watch him. And also he had the Bruins game uh, last night also. So I had the two screens going. You know, since I'm a Red Sox podcaster, I had the Red Sox on the TV. I had the Bruins on the iPad. I was all set to watch both. Uh, and then Corey Kluber gave up three runs in the first goes walk, double, RBI ground out, home run, and then I fell asleep. And I missed most, basically the entire rest of the Red Sox game. I opened the third period of the Bruins game. They were losing 5-3 to three already, or no, it was 5-2 to two already. So I missed absolutely nothing. I guess Valdez got a couple hits, and then they sent him back down when Yu Chang came off the paternity list. Um, the big takeaways, again, another rough outing for Corey Kluber. You know, if if his control is not immaculate, that 88 mile per hour cutter he throws and that curveball that doesn't curve like it used to is just going to get absolutely fucking hammered. You know, if the Red Sox were going to be ruthless and try to play to win every game and money was not a factor, you know, if you were going to take somebody out of this rotation just based on performance and stuff, it would be Kluber. But. He's won two Cy Youngs. You're paying him $10 million. He was your only free agent pitching, starting pitching move of any significance. So you're going to give him some slack. The question is how much? Because even if, if even on a good day, you only trust him for five innings, like what are we doing? This is a bridge year. This team is not winning the World Series. In all likelihood, they're not making the playoffs. I don't think this team is winning 81 or more games. You know, I banged the under on this team. I'd rather, all things being equal, I'd rather see the young guys. Let Tanner Houck figure it out as a major league starter. Let Garrett Whitlock continue to start. Obviously, Brian Bayo, he's, you know, going to have to be your future ace because Lord knows the Red Sox won't actually pay for an ace. So I would rather roll with the young guys, give them a chance, than, you know, have Corey Kluber try to labor through five innings. You know, if this was last year's team where you had delusions of contending and he was your Rich Hill and he's eating innings and fine. But be that as may, I, I wouldn't pull the plug on Kluber now, but I'd keep an eye on it. I need to see something with the next handful of starts, something, some like clue that there could be more there. He needs to locate. He has to be precise. And if he's not, he's not a major league pitcher. Um, and then the game today, 
um, this afternoon, uh, the, the getaway game. Uh, basically, the game was ruined for the Twins when uh, their starter, Kenta Maeda, was hit by a, a line drive, 111 off the bat from Jaron Duran. Absolutely smoked it. Uh, and that was in the second inning. Um, Maeda had given up a run, and it made like a loud thud when it hit his ankle. Like, it was so, the thud was so loud, I, I thought like it hit like the sole of his like shoe or the bottom of his shoe. Because uh, he did kind of, after the ball deflected, uh, Maeda did manage to field it and throw uh, Duran out at first. But after that, the Twins went to their bullpen. The first guy they brought in got shelled and then uh, basically let the guy wear it. Um, the Red Sox got out to a huge lead. Um, I think it was 11-2. to two. Uh, Ryan Brazier gave up some garbage runs in the ninth. Um, but the takeaway for today is you got seven innings out of Tanner Houck. They let him face the entire lineup for a third time, which those are two things they've never done with Tanner Houck. And, you know, those of us who want to see what Houck can do with an extended run in the rotation, we got a taste of it. This is this Minnesota Twins lineup is a decent major league lineup. They're down a few guys, but you still have Carlos Correa. I think Buxton, you know, they've been DHing him. I don't think he started today, but that wasn't a horrible major league lineup. And, uh, Tanner Houck shut them down. Okay, maybe they got behind and kind of you know mentally packed it in. That that's possible. But that was the third quality start. So you got the we had Whitlock on Friday, sale over the weekend, and Houck today. And that just makes a huge difference, especially with a six-man rotation and only a seven-man bullpen. So that's a five and two home stand. Not a lot to complain about. Yes, the Red Sox got some, you know, good fortune there. In terms of kind of takeaways or things that work that might bode well going forward, um, you know, can, you know, can Jaron Duran do this? Can you know Alex Verdugo, you know, maintain his hot start or something close to this hot start? But the big thing is the starting rotation. You know, as much as starters throw less than they ever have, and you know. Don't, you know, get pulled after twice through the lineup and the pitch counts are lower. You still need quality starting pitching in this game. Or if you're using an opener, you still need innings from the next guy. And early this year, the Red Sox weren't getting it. And Tampa, their their pitchers, other than I think Pavetta had one good start, but the three other games, their starters were getting their, their faces absolutely kicked in. So... This team is going to have to be carried by the starting pitching. I mean, they're up there in runs scored, but I still don't think this is a great lineup. Uh, that game uh, Tuesday against the Twins where they straighted all those runners, you know, that's what happens when you don't have a lot of depth in the lineup. Eventually, you know, you get some guys on, and then somebody on the bottom, like a Casas who's struggling or a Yoshida who's struggling, when you don't have those big bats to anchor the lineup, then you're counting on the other guys. And if the other guys are struggling, then you that's when you start to struggle scoring runs. So, you know, in the game Thursday, they took advantage of kind of the back end of the Twins bullpen um, to, to kind of pad that run total a little bit. But I don't know how that's going to translate when they face the better starting pitchers. I mean, uh, they faced Joe Ryan last night, couldn't do much. Uh, they had Sonny Gray on the ropes a couple times on Monday and Sonny Gray still, you know, got them through a few innings. And, you know, if, you know, Christian Vasquez, you know, doesn't, you know, get interfered with or doesn't let his, you know, let himself get interfered with. They probably lose that game. So, um, you know, Kluber, we got to keep an eye on him. 
He needs to show us something soon. Yoshida, he had a couple hits today. You started driving the ball the opposite field a little bit. Maybe he's coming out of it. Um, it hasn't been encouraging really so far. Ever since that that asshole and his stupid kid wouldn't give him his home run ball, the guy <laughs> Yoshida's been in a slump. So maybe somebody can go down to uh, New Jersey and talk some sense into those fucking people. Um, other takeaways from the homestand was uh, Lou Merloni's first trip in the booth. Lou, like I expected, like a lot of us expected, just a total natural in the booth. You know, some people think Euclid is boring. I like Euclid. I think he does a good job. I think he's got a little sense of humor. Um, but out of everybody that Nesson has tried the last like year or two with, you know, Jerry passing away and Dennis Eckersley retiring, you lose a natural. If there was one guy who was going to do 150 games like Jerry used to, I want it to be Lou. He is that good. Um, so those are our Red Sox thoughts. Um, got a few league-wide topics we'll touch on, and then we will look ahead to the next two series. The big news in Major League Baseball is the announcement of the Oakland A's, the Athletics, purchasing land in Las Vegas, 49 acres, uh, off the strip to build a potential stadium and given the size of the plot, 49 acres, you know, for comparison, Fenway, I think it's nine and a half acres. So this is going to be probably one of those ballpark villages, property development, blah, bullshit, blah, 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 plays. Uh, so this sucks for Oakland fans. Obviously when I first started watching baseball, this was, you know, the bash brothers era where you had Canseco, McGuire, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, um, I mean, those Oakland teams, they were they were a juggernaut, you know, in, in the format that Major League Baseball had back then, where you had the two divisions in each league, four teams making the playoffs. You got the best teams in the playoffs, the best teams in the LCS, in the World Series. So you had juggernauts. I guess you do have that a little bit now with like the Astros and the Dodgers. So I shouldn't paint with too broad of a brush, but being a Red Sox fan, there was a couple of years where they won the AL East. And they just got absolutely boat raced in 88 and 90 in uh, the ALCS by those Oakland teams. And I mean, they were just, just, you, I, I mean, I can't describe like what a juggernaut those teams were, what they felt like, you know, to me as a little kid watching a Red Sox team with, you know, Roger Clemens, Wade Boggs, and not much else try to beat those teams, try to contend with those teams. Um, you know, in my season preview, I'd said that, you know, baseball is more fun when the A's are good. Um, you know, that's a rowdy crowd at that ballpark, you know, not always the biggest crowds, but you know, really, really good fans there. And when the team is good, you know, the fans would show up in decent numbers considering how antiquated the ballpark was, um, you know, really what's happened the last handful of years there. I mean, it really is majorly coming to life where the owner tanked the team, got rid of all of the good players. So imagine this, imagine getting rid of all of your good players, literally all of them running the lowest payroll in major league baseball and then juicing up ticket prices. That's what the A's did. They, they juiced up their, the parking fees at the stadium, charging people 30 bucks a pop to park. Now that, that might sound cheap in Boston, but you know, Fenway really has no designated parking. You're parking in some private garage somewhere. The Coliseum is surrounded by a sea of parking lots and they juiced up the parking. 
on top of juicing up the tickets and getting rid of like most of like the little fringe benefits for the season ticket holder. So they really did everything they could in the last handful of years to alienate that fan base, drive attendance and interest down to nothing. Um, you know, this is, this had been in the works for a while. So what it was announced, it wasn't a huge surprise. I don't, I don't, as much as I don't want to give John Fisher a break, the, the A's owner, it's not all his fault. There's plenty of blame to go around. You know, the politicians in Oakland, you know, haven't made things easy. You know, this Howard Terminal development that the A's were trying to do, you know, was haggling over the environmental impacts. If you do anything in California, just the environmental impact studies and all that bullshit delays it for years and years. And then, you know, was there enough affordable housing in this development? And, yeah, okay, so that was a mess. The, the politicians didn't do the A's any favors. Also, the Giants bear some responsibility for this. So in every other market like New York or Chicago, where you have multiple teams, the team's, you know, area, the team's territories, they perfectly overlap. Well, in the late 80s and early 90s, when the A's were high flying and it looked like the Giants might leave, the owner of the A's at the time gave the Giants the territory that encompassed, you know, San Jose, basically signed it over in case they wanted to move. Well, the Giants ended up getting sold. They built, you know, a, a PNC, not PNC, the park on the water it was packed bell forget what the fuck it is now but you get the point i think it's att stadium gorgeous gorgeous park on my bucket list so they built that but even though they stayed in san francisco they kept the san jose territory and blocked the ace from potentially moving to san jose and that kind of gets to my other point is you know i was skeptical that pro sports would work in las vegas just because vegas is a pretty big city but it's surrounded by desert so it's actually a very small media market hockey worked a lot better than I thought it would. It helped that, you know, the Golden Knights were good right out of the gate, went to the cup finals. Um, and hockey can work in a market where you draw well, because out of the four major sports, the NHL is by far the most dependent still on the gate. So the fact that the Knights, you know, were able to, you know, being the first team in Vegas, being good right away, the kind of the spectacle they made those games, the Knights have been able to sell out and make money. And, you know, I think even this year, they're still one of the better teams in the Western Conference. And then the Raiders moved to Vegas a few years ago, got their new stadium. In the NFL, the revenue comes from you know national TV. You can put a, an NFL team almost anywhere and you're trying to sell out, you know, 10 home games a year. So that's not very difficult. With baseball... So let's compare baseball to the Golden Knights. The Golden Knights, you have 41 home games, call it 18,000 seats in the arena to sell out, 20,000, 18, 20,000. Well, for a baseball team, you're, you know, they're, the A's are saying they're going to build a 35,000 seat stadium. So that's almost, that's going to be double the size of the Golden Knights arena and double the amount of dates. You're going from, you know, because you have 81 home games. So it's going to be a lot, that's a lot more inventory to sell to kind of the same group of people and out of the three uh, out of the four major sports baseball by far is the most dependent on local television revenue and we know all the problems right now with local tv revenue all the rsn's in the process of going under etc but leaving that aside the vegas tv market is very very small so let's say the a's get a local tv deal 
that local TV deal probably isn't going to be as lucrative as what they could get in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is one of the largest markets in America. So even if you're the second team in the Bay Area, you probably have access to more TVs. And if your team is half decent and well run and well marketed, not a fucking clown show like the A's have been, you have a chance to get more eyeballs on your team in the Bay Area, even splitting that territory than you do in Vegas being kind of, you know, the only game in town for Major League Baseball. So I'm skeptical that this will work. Um, going for, I think the location is great. You know, you're kind of close enough to where everything is in Vegas without being on top of it. You know, you're right near the, you know, the Golden Knights Arena. They talk about having a Skyway. So I think that part of it will be cool. Um, you know, if they can make the property development cool, you know, people might hang out there, especially the locals, because the locals, you know, abhor going to the strip. Um, so that part of it might give it a chance, but, you know, I wouldn't bet on it. I think this, the A's are still going to be a revenue sharing recipient. Uh, you know, they, they could be the Marlins in the desert in Vegas. That's if, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, David Caval, the president of the A's, that's your worst case scenario. The Marlins of the desert playing in a brand new stadium that's half empty and, just not having the revenue to compete with, you know, like in that division, you have the Rangers in a huge market. They spend a lot of money. The Astros in a huge market, spending a reasonable amount of money. And then the Mariners, Seattle's a pretty big market. So I think they're still behind the eight ball with this move. But uh, at the same time, there's something to be said for not have, playing in a ballpark overrun with possums. The Coliseum is such a shithole it's not even rat infested. They upgraded from rats to possums. Uh, over the weekend, the Mets were in town and uh, the Mets broadcasters had to vacate the visiting booth because the possums, there was so much possum shit. The stench of the possum shit made the Mets broadcast team move to another booth. And the booth they moved them to had a big pole right in the window. So, um, so Gary Cohen trying to call the game, literally had to call the game looking around a fucking pole to get away from the possum shit. So, you know, I can, my misgivings and my, my feelings aside, I can understand this to a degree. They had to do something. And, you know, just the contentious negotiations in Oakland, the dragging of the feet, trying to get anything done in that area. So I, I understand it to a degree. I don't think it's all the ace fault. I think it's, you can divvy up the blame pie however you want, but I, I don't know if this is going to be good for baseball or good for the athletics franchise at the end of the day. And the A's really are one of the most historic franchises in baseball. You want to win a bar bet? Ask someone what Philadelphia sports team has won the most championships. It's still the Philadelphia A's. That's, that's how historic that franchise is, and now they're on their fourth city already. Now, this is Connie Mack's penance for being a cheap fuck. Um, Max Scherzer. So that was interesting. He got ejected, uh, for sticky stuff. Said it was rosin. You know, they had him wash his hands. He tried washing his hands with alcohol. The sticky stuff was stickier. According to the umpires, he got ejected in his face a 10 game suspension. And, you know, I don't think he's cheating. He's not using spider tack. You know, you, you, I think this gets into the minutia of the rules where, yes, the pitcher can use the rosin bag, but you're only supposed to use the rosin bag on the mound. You're not supposed to have rosin on your glove. I've seen 
I think I heard, uh, I think it was Dallas Braden say that, you know, well, the reason why pitchers put rosin on the glove is it's a pain in the ass to, you know, every time you want to, you know, apply the rosin to go off to the back of the mound and, you know, you know, you know, go for the bag, especially now in a pitch clock era, it's probably easier just to have it on the glove, you know, apply the fingertips and, you know, throw. So, you know, this is where kind of the sticky stuff enforcement's getting a little goofy. All right, yes, we need to get the spider tack out of the game. The spin rates were out of control. I mean, it's hard enough to hit. I was talking about this earlier in the show. It's hard enough to hit with how hard these guys are throwing, how these guys can go to, you know, drive line or whatever, design the breaking ball exactly how they want to throw it, get the exact, you know, movement they want. So Major League Baseball had to rein that in, but it's getting a little silly. And the fact that you know, it's, you know, Phil Cuzzy's, you know, the only umpire who's ejected guys and he's ejected three guys for kind of says something. So they need to kind of tighten up the the procedures, the process and the punishment because, um, you know, um, you know, German from the Yankees, he had a, a sticky stuff situation. They told him to wash his hands and they let him wash his hands where when they, they tried to give Scherzer a second chance and um, he got run. So they need to tighten that up. Theo Manfred, figure it out. And Madison Bumgarner getting designated for assignments. This kind of ties into the Corey Kluber thing. Um, you know, guys who were horses just not having it anymore. And, and and Mad Bum, you know, he I think his ERA for the last you know three years with the Diamondbacks was like five point nine six or something. And you know, they've given him time. They've given him chances. You know, he's been on and off the IL. I don't know if he's ever kind of been the same since that dirt bike accident, but he's a guy who's been kind of slowly leaking velocity over the last six, seven, eight years anyway, but he's only 33 years old, never had a major arm problem. You know, a lot of times, you know, when guys, you know, kind of slowly decline like this, usually it's kind of like a culmination of a million little injuries. You know, David price kind of went on a little bit of similar trajectory. So, if it's the end, it's been a heck of a career. You know, I think he might go down as one of the last real kind of like postseason horses, kind of like that shilling type. You know, Josh Beckett had his moments. You know, Jack Morris. You're, you want to go way back in the day, you know, Gibson, Koufax. You know, because now, especially in the postseason, I mean, in the regular season, teams are loath to let guys face the lineup a third time. In the postseason, Jesus Christ. The first sign of trouble, they're you know they're giving guys the hook. I mean, you know the, you know all the hand wringing over you know the Rays taking Blake Snell out of Game Six of the 2020 World Series. So, Mad Bum, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, the last of a dying breed. Hate to see it go. Hate to see it end like this. You know, if I'm the A's, I bring him in. What the hell? We suck. Bring him back to the Bay Area, an area where he's comfortable. Let him pitch in that huge ass fucking ballpark. Have him eat innings. If we have any young talent worth a damn, which Realistically, the A's don't because they're three and sixteen. But if there's anyone salvageable, let them learn from from Mad Bum. And and the big thing for the A's is that he's free. We know the A's don't want to spend money on anything, so that'd be where I'd like to see him end up. Um, you know, the Giants if they have illusion of of contending. They probably won't want to bring him back. Um, the Red Sox next series is going to be in Milwaukee against the Brewers. The Brewers are having a hot start to the season. They currently lead the National League Central. Um, Brandon Woodruff has gone on the IL. Uh, Corbin Burns also had an injury his last start, but he should be okay. It is expected to start in this series. So this will be a good measuring stick. Um, 
you know, Freddie Peralta's had a great start, you know, um, in the, the Brewers rotation. So the, the Red Sox are going to face some quality pitching. It'll be a good test for this lineup. And then after that, the Red Sox go to Baltimore for three games there. There, the Red Sox will not be tested by pitching because the Orioles pitching other than, you know, the potential of Grayson Rodriguez is trash. Uh, but the Red Sox pitching will be tested by that Orioles lineup with uh, our friend Adley Rutschman, who absolutely abused this team opening week. So we have that to look forward to. Um, you know, after this week, the Red Sox were only six and a half games out of first um, at 10 and 10. Uh, the Orioles are two games ahead of the Red Sox, four and a half behind the Rays. The Yankees are four games back and then Toronto is five games back. Uh, the Twins, the team the Red Sox just took two out of three from, has a one-game lead over Cleveland in the AL Central. Uh, Detroit, 7-10, and 10, only three games back. I mean, they, they looked absolutely horrible when the Red Sox went to visit them in Detroit, so I'm surprised they're doing that well. Uh, the White Sox are a disaster. That could be, you know, we, we've one of the themes of the show so far has been what a failed rebuild looks like. You know, the White Sox did at least get to the playoffs. So I don't know if you could call this rebuild a total failure, but if they don't get their act together soon, like if they miss the playoffs again, if this core of young, that young talent that they tanked for doesn't coalesce and doesn't give them more than this, I'd call that rebuild a fail. Um, and then the Royals are in last at four and 15. I mean, that lineup's just been a disaster. You know, it's basically Bobby Witt Jr. They're hoping for Pasquantino, but not very good. That's another failed rebuild. That's a failed small market rebuild. Uh, the Rangers are in first out west, 12 and 6. Amazing what happens you actually spend money. Uh, you know, Nate Evaldi did have a rough start uh, last week, but, you know, his stuff has looked good. Um, Astros 9 and 10. The Angels 9 and 10. The Angels were flying high till they came here last weekend. Mariners 8 and 11, a little bit of a slow start. And then you have the Oakland A's three and sixteen, who I don't even think could uh, compete in Triple A. Uh, National League Braves fourteen and five off to a great start. Mets right behind them, twelve and seven, two games back. The Marlins are having a good start. Their starting pitching has been very good. They're getting um, you know Luisa Rise has had a hot start at the plate. So with him and Jazz, that lineup has been half decent. Uh, the Phillies are struggling eight and twelve. They need Bryce Harper back, and they need Bryce Harper back soon. And then the Nationals, they're a little bit better than the A's. Uh, the Pirates are having a hot start, 13-7. and seven. McCutcheon's been on fire. You know, Brian Reynolds, you know, we saw what he did when uh, the Pirates were here in Boston. So who knows? Maybe the Pirates are a year too early. If they're still in it in June, will that ownership give them the resource to add payroll? Will Ben Sherrington find an appendage between his legs and actually part with prospects to supplement this team. If they're in it, I think they'll do what the Orioles did last year, which is sell and do nothing. But that's just me. I could be wrong. The Cubs are surprising people a little bit. They're 11 and seven. Um, you know, I expect them to kind of be in that 80 to 85 win range as it is. Cardinals are struggling eight and 11. So they're already six games behind the Brewers, but it's still early. You know, their pitching just has not been very good so far. Uh, out West, the Diamondbacks are 11 and eight. Game and a half ahead of the Dodgers, two and a half ahead of the Padres. So that's why they had to cut this Madison Bumgarner thing short. You know, they're trying to compete. They're trying to win. Yes, or they're yes, it's early, but they are in first place. They can't just keep throwing them out there and hoping for the best. If they if they 
they're not seeing it, a path for him to kind of get back to close to what he was with the Giants. If it looks like it's looked the last few years, which has been horrible, just cut bait now and move on. They have too much young talent to, to let that contract tie them down. And that's why Mike Kazin is, is excellent at what he does. You know, Mike Kazin, former Red Sox GM, he was the GM under Dave Dombrowski, who was the de facto GM. But he's excellent at what he does, you know, competing in that division and in that market. Um, you know, Arizona is not a small market, but I'd say it's medium to small, probably that 15 to 20 range, which you were near a division with L.A. and San Francisco and the Padres spending what they're spending. Not easy. So kudos to the Diamondbacks. I hope they keep it up. Um, and then the Giants and the Rockies bringing up the rear, although the Giants did extend Logan Webb. So that's one uh, cornerstone piece they have. But uh, the, the the Giants need to do what uh, the Rangers have done and go out and find some guys and spend some money and, and accelerate this thing unless they just want to be a, a permanent fixture in the underclass of the National League. So quick overview of where the league is at. Uh, you know, the Red Sox. You know, technically not out of it. I don't think this team's. I don't think this team was good enough to compete the division anyway. You know, if you're one of those folks hanging out on wild card hope, as it stands right now, they're only a game and a half out of the third wild card, which in this watered down playoff structure, Major League Baseball has constitutes being in it. Um, hopefully, they can keep this up. You know, as down as I am on this team, I still enjoy the wins. You know, that game on Sunday. No, it wasn't Sunday. It was Tuesday. Yeah, that that game Tuesday. That was that was that was just fun. That was good stuff. You know, it was ten innings. It was three oh six. You had multiple lead changes. Weird stuff happening. So, as negative as I can be, I still want the team to do well. I still enjoy the wins. I have no problem being proven wrong. I'm wrong all the time. So, bait continue. But then again, I'm right a lot too. So, it might not continue. So that's going to wrap up episode 18 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Uh, we'll record next week, I think, uh, Wednesday night at the conclusion of that Orioles series. Um, to support the show, please like and subscribe on the podcast application of your choice. Please share the show with any Red Sox fan in your life, any baseball fan in your life. Tell them to check it out. Uh, to support the show financially, offset some of our production costs and research costs. Um, there is a subscription option um, in the show notes or a donation option. You can donate as little as 99 cents per month, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. If you are willing and able to do so, all donations are greatly appreciated. Um, that is going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for listening.